So we're going to be in uh, Genesis 16. I hope you'll take a Bible and join me there. Genesis 16, the text Damien read for us a bit ago. So glad that you're here. I'm glad that we get to worship together. we got a good crowd today, it looks, at least from my vantage point. So we got a uh, fairly full auditorium, and we appreciate your part of our worship assembly today. We welcome each one of you to this, uh, this portion of our worship. You don't have to raise your hand, but does anybody in here like waiting? Like you go to the doctor, the dentist, or car repair shop, or, and you hope it'll be four hours? You're, most of you are with me on this, right? You'd, I mean, all things being equal, you'd rather not sit there and wait for a while, given the choice. That's, that's, the, way I, that's the way I feel. I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting much, much at all. It's tolerable when it's in an office or at the car repair shop. I mean, you can deal with that. It's not quite as tolerable when it's something bigger than that, something weightier than that, you know, like life, like, like years kind of stuff. You ever get tired of waiting on God? I mean, you, you, think about, you think about stuff. I think about stuff that, you know, I've dealt with, that you've dealt with, that people have faced. Uh, sometimes it's frustrating and hard to wait on God to act, especially, maybe especially, when you know this is what he's going to do or that he said he would do or you know it's his will for him to do this. If you're a parent, you ever wonder, how long is it going to take God to do what I know God wants to do anyway in the, in the heart and life of my son or daughter? I want to see something, Lord. I know it's what you want. It's what I want. What's the problem? Just go ahead and do the thing you said you would do. Why don't you do it, Lord? Maybe in a relationship with a significant other, with a spouse, it's not where you want it to be. You, you know where you want it to be. You know where it ought to be, but it's not there. And you wonder, what in the world is God doing? Why doesn't he just do it already? Maybe, maybe it's your health. You're just the waiting. The waiting on the test result. The waiting, the waiting on the effectiveness of the, the, the regimen, the drug regimen that you've, you've been put on or the... How's this going to work out? What's it going to look like? How's it going to affect my quality of life? How's it going to affect my life or, or death, perhaps? What, what's God doing? Why doesn't he hear my, my prayers? I don't understand. And maybe even in the case of our story today, maybe it's, it's having children, something, something like that in, as, part, as, part, as part of your family. You know, you, you anticipate, you, you want to... You have a son, you want to have a daughter, you want to expand your family, and you wonder why God hasn't answered that prayer yet. Maybe, maybe God, maybe you've given up on God. It seems as if that's what's happened with Sarah, you know. Our, our story is an interesting one, I think. It's, it's located right here. If you've been here the, lately, you, you know the chapters we've looked at before this. Maybe some of you haven't been here, and that's fine. But what you've got here is you've got have, God having called Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, and he said to them, I'm going to make a great 
nation out of you. I'm going to have a relationship with you. I'm going to make your family huge. Your descendants are going to be like, God uses different kinds of metaphors to make his point. He says they're going to be like the stars of the sky. That's how many kids, grandkids, great, 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 great grandkids you're going to have. It's going to be like the dust of the earth, like the sand on the seashore. That's how big your family's going to be over time. Sarah was 65 years old when God made that promise. And now she's 75. Abram's 10 years older, he's 85. And God hasn't done anything yet. It's kind of hard to be the matriarch or the patriarch. It's, it's kind of hard to be the mother or father of a great number of descendants if you don't have one, right? I mean, that's pretty much how it has to start. You've got to have the first one. In order for you to have grandkids, you've got to have the kid. In order to have great-grandkids, you've got to have the kid first so you can have grandkids, so that you can have great-grandkids. So look at God's promise in Genesis 12, man. I'm, I'm going to make of you a great, great nation, dust of the earth, sand of the seashore, stars of the sky. You're going to have tons. A decade passes. Sarah realizes she's not getting any younger. And so she decides, well, I don't know what's going on with God. I don't know if God has forgotten about his promise. I don't know, I don't know if, if maybe he's, I don't know. I don't know what God's doing. You ever had that kind of thing going on? I don't know what God's doing. I know what he says. I know what the word says. But what the word says and what's going on in my life don't match up with each other. I think that's where we are in the story of Sarah. She doesn't know what God is doing. And so the text just reads very simply, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. In fact, if you look at this, that is repeated several times. I think it's an important part of the narrative. In fact, if you were to go back to Genesis 11, it starts very, very first time Sarah's name is mentioned. Listen to this. Well, it's the second time. It says, Abram had a wife. Her name was Sarah. Second time her name is mentioned, the very next verse, Hebrews, um, Genesis 11, verse 30. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Very clear. We go to Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, 10 years later, Abram's wife had borne him no children, so she's barren. She can't have children in Genesis 11. But she must have gotten her hopes up when God came to Abram and said, Essentially, I know that you're barren. You have not been able to have children. Something's biologically wrong. But, God says, actually, you're going to be the mother. Abram, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And so her, her spirits, you know, I mean, you know how desperately she must have wanted children. And her spirits were lifted. I can't believe this is going to happen. God is going to give me a child. So her hopes at this point, you know, in Genesis 11, she's 65 years old. She doesn't have any children. And then God says, you're going to have a child. From this sense of desperation to the height, this emotional peak, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a mother. I don't know how miraculously God's going to do this, but I'm going to have a child. Ten years later, the text points out, in pretty just basic terms. 
Sarah had borne him no children. No children. You know, one of the observations I think you can make about this, that when she decides to do what she does, it's, it's wrong, but it's at least understandable from a human perspective, isn't it? Can, can you relate to this? I mean, you can understand why she may have chosen to do this. A couple of things about the text. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. In, this is really weird to us, I know, but and, and those of you who've never read this story, this is the first time you've heard it, you think, wow, what in the world? She gives her servant to her husband so that he can have a child through her? That's kind of weird. That's, 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 just, that's not right. I, I'm, not saying this is, I'm not saying this is the right way. In fact, I know it's not the right way that this should have happened. Sarah shouldn't have done this, but culturally speaking, it's not as weird as you and I might think it is. Because back in that time, it was considered an appropriate way, if not ideal, at least an appropriate way to have a, an heir. If a husband and wife can't have children of their own, the wife being barren, the husband could take servant of his wife have a child through her, and the child would be regarded as his and his wife's. So culturally speaking, in the ancient Near East, this is not as weird as you and I would think it would be in our own, our own culture. Nonetheless, it's not, it's not the way God planned. This is not what God anticipated. But my guess is this is what Sarah was thinking at this point. She's thinking, well, God said I'm going to be, you know, we're going to be the parents of this great nation, and uh, 10 years have passed, nothing's happened, so here's, here's my guess. He wants this to go about like this. Now, she's, she's doing this based on no word from God. God hadn't told her to do this, but she decides to go about it. So she gives her servant to Abram. Abram and she have relations. A child is conceived, and then things go badly. Uh, apparently, Hagar takes advantage of this. I can have a child, and you can't have a child. And there's scorn involved. There's mocking going on. There's this, I don't know exactly what, but the tension between Sarah and Hagar escalates, and it's just not a good situation. And so, I mean, we can understand that. But just, just pause there for a second. We, you can relate to this, at least in this sense. We can relate in the sense that it's understandable why Sarah might make a choice like this when it was culturally appropriate for this to happen, when lots of other people did this sort of thing, when you're 75 years old and even in a time where women could give birth later in life than they do now, we can understand why she may have made this choice. It's at least understandable. Now, underlying this, though, is something important. You and I along with Sarah, have a problem when time passes. We, 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 we have a struggle. We want God to act. We want God to act right now. We want him to act, you know, yesterday. We want him to do the thing that we know he intends to do or ought to do. We want him to do. He said he's going to do or it's the right thing to do. We want him to do it and we want him to do it right now. And so we're often tempted when he doesn't do it to circumvent his will and make it happen on our own. This is, this is our own desire to be autonomous, our own desire to do things our own way. This is, this is the way that we often work. We tend to doubt the word of God, the word of the Lord. We tend to doubt that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. By the way, there's something interesting here that I want to point out to you. Just a couple of 
verbal similarities between a previous story. In our text in Genesis 16, verse 3, if you're there with me, it says, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now you read that. Does that sound... Are, are, are there any echoes there of a previous story? Maybe. Let me read it to you again. Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Does it sound anything like this? The woman saw that the tree was good for food. It goes on and it says, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The language there, by the way, in English and in the underlying Hebrew is very similar almost like the person who wrote Genesis 3 is telling the story of Genesis 16 with the same kind of language so that we might hear that echo. Do you see what I'm saying here? Sarah took Hagar, gave her to, her, to Abram, her husband. Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. One more thing. In Genesis 16 and verse 3, it says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. That is almost identical to Genesis 3:17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, God said to Adam. Do you see the echoes there? It's almost like the, the narrator of our story is wanting us to hear this Eden thing, this thing going on again. And that is, God said, trust me, don't eat of the tree in the middle. I know it looks good. I know the fruit looks tasty. I know that you, you'll be tempted to eat, but just trust me, don't eat of the fruit. Don't do it. And Eve listened to the voice of the serpent who said, man, it looks good, doesn't it? Tastes good. Make you wise. God's just wanting to hold the best stuff away from you. He's just trying, he's a killjoy. He doesn't want you to enjoy all the blessings of being able to see good and evil on your own, to be your own determiner of what is right and what is wrong, to, to be the one who creates your own truth, to be your own God, your own, your own king. That's what happened in Genesis 3. That's what happened there. And, and this story in Genesis 16 is being told in ways to echo that. The same thing is happening. God says, trust me. Trust me, I told you I will make of you a great nation, and I'll do it. But we don't trust him, do we? Same thing that happened with Eve in Genesis 3 is what's happening here in Genesis 16. And that's what happens when you and I, we know the will of God, we know what he wants from us, but Lord, that's so hard. I want to experience this. I know you've put a fence around that. I know intellectually on some level it's for my own good that you've put that off limits. Lord, I know that. And it might be some sort of sexual experience. It might be the, the use of one's money. It might be the way that you use your speech. But, but God has put fences here and he says, I want you to do it this way because this is the way that I created you. This is the way that's best. Don't eat of the tree in the center of the garden. But God, why? I don't understand. This is what I want. I want to taste the fruit. And so we circumvent God's plan and we do it our own way. And that's exactly what Sarah and Abraham did 
in our story. They doubted the word of the Lord. I already said this, but God's response is this. This is, this is always God's response. I mean, I think this sums up the story of the Bible pr- pretty, pretty well. Over and over and over again, the Bible the Bible's trying to teach us this. And this is a, the story of Scripture as far as our response to God's promises. This is the story that comes through over and over again. God says, look, look, trust me. Trust me. Just trust me. I've got this. I'm going to work it out. I'm God. I know what's best. I know, what, I know how I created you. I know what's best for you. It's not best for you to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not best for you. It's not best for you to be your own determiner of what's right and wrong. It's not best for you to do it this way, Sarah and Abram. I told you I would make you a great nation. And it doesn't matter how many years pass. I'm going to keep my promise. That is the message of the Bible from beginning to end. Is God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. He will do what he says he's going to do. And time may pass, but he is faithful. He is Yahweh. He is the covenant-keeping, the everlasting God of loving kindness, mercy, patience, and justice. God acts faithfully with his people over and over again. He always does. He always does. And isn't this the ongoing struggle that you and I have is to believe that. Let me ask you right now, what are you going through? Please answer this internally. Engage in whatever self-reflection you need to and examine your own life. What are you going through right now where you're having a hard time trusting that God's going to do the right thing? Is it a relationship? Is it a problem at work that could be so much more easily solved if you just lowered your standard of ethics just a bit? Right? Or if this relationship, you could fix this. Now, it might not be the best way, but you can fix it. You see, what's going on in this story, and again and again and again, is we like to fix things ourselves. We like to be autonomous. We like to, we like to chart our own courses, right? Do it our own way instead of letting God do what he says he's going to do. What are you dealing with right now? Is it a relationship? Is it an addiction? Is it a struggle with sin? Is it a problem at work? Is it, is it in your parenting? Is it your marriage? What is it? What is it? Where's the promise of God that you're having a hard time believing? And how are you being tempted based on the fear that's in your own heart and the uncertainty and the lack of ultimate trust in God? Where, what is that thing that circumvents the will of God that you're being tempted to do? Just eat the fruit, the serpent says. Just taste the fruit. No big deal. You're not going to die. It's not going to be the end of the world. Compromise your ethics. Go outside of God's fence just a bit. Disregard his word just a little bit. Actually, it's not one of the big commands anyway. It's just a small one. What's the big deal? Just do it. You know, I think there's some other kind of, there's some foreshadowing going on in our text. There's um, Hagar, the Egyptian There's 
Sarah, the matriarch of what will become the nation of Israel. There's conflict in our text between the Israelite, if you will, and the Egyptian in Genesis 16. And I think maybe, maybe there's a way in which this story anticipates conflict between Israel and Egypt later on. And maybe there's a hint here of coming conflict based on the choices that are made here. In fact, in fact, it, it's not, this is not a stretch to say this, because of this choice that the world even now is experiencing conflict. Certain parts of the world, conflict, Arab-Israeli conflict that go back to this particular moment because of the descendants of Ishmael who's the child conceived here, and the descendants of Isaac, who's going to be the child conceived 13, 14 years after this, the child that God gives Sarah, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac have been at war and conflict for 4,000 years. There's anticipation here that this act, maybe not that big of a deal, culturally appropriate, if not ideal. Sarah, what's the big deal you know, just, just, just do this. This is what God wants anyway. You're helping God accomplish what he was going to accomplish. So let's just do it this way. And the, and the hints in the text of coming conflict between Israel and Egypt, anticipating this greater conflict. In other words, here's what I want you to see. This story, this story, we don't read it in Genesis 16, but we, we read it later on and we experience it later on, that this choice that Sarah made had consequences for herself and for her family, and for their descendants, and for the world moving on. And so maybe this is a reminder for you and me. And you and I are tempted. Lord, I, I know where you want this to go, and I'm going to help you get there, and I'm going to circumvent your will a bit. I'm going I'm to compromise a bit, because the end is good. The end is good. I know the end is good. The means, eh, maybe not so much, but... But the, but the end is good, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manipulate the means a little bit to get to the end that's good. And what the text is teaching us is you have no idea the kind of consequences that that little compromise in your ethics, your little compromise in your, in your morality, that little, that little momentary lapse in your commitment to be faithful to the Word of God, you don't have any idea the kind of negative consequences that might produce in your own family and in other people. That's the way this story's told here. Trust me, God says. Trust me. Now, one more thing, application for us, is this, this is one of those stories in the Old Testament. Not, not all of them. In fact, many of them aren't mentioned, but there's this story. There's this text in Galatians 4. We're not going to turn there and look at it. It's kind of a complicated text. It's got some things that are somewhat difficult to read, but, but Paul in Galatians 4 uses this story as an allegory. And what he says in making this point to his audience, to the churches of Galatia, he says to them, we've got a choice. We are going to be the descendants of Hagar, the slave woman, or we're going to be descendants of Sarah, the free woman. And his point is... Trust God. His point is, trust, trust God and know that your, your salvation is not going to be found in your 
going outside of the will of God and trying to do these certain things, your salvation is going to be found by faith. That's this contrast in Galatians 4 between the faith and the law by manipulating the law versus just doing and living by faith. That's, that's Paul's point in Galatians 4. And his point for you and me is the same. We're going to be people of faith. We're going to trust. Are we going to think that we can manipulate God by law-keeping or by, by doing certain things and forcing God's hand, forcing God to do what we want him to do? Or are we going to be people of faith? Trust me is what God says. And in a way, that's, that's the story of our relationship to God. Always, it's a decision that you'll make. There will be a moment this week, it could be on Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. It might be Wednesday night. It might be Friday night. It might be in the locker room after school on Thursday. It might be in calculus class on Tuesday it might be when you're on a date with a significant other. It might be when you get this edict from the boss that's telling you to do this or that. It might be in a conversation you have with your husband or wife. There's going to be a moment. There are going to be these moments in our lives where we've got to make a choice. And the choice is, are we going to just trust that God has this thing and he's faithful he will do the right thing. He'll work things out. He always keeps his promise. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It's the way Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3. And Peter's point is, when God makes a promise, it doesn't matter how much time passes. God is going to keep that promise. Do you trust that? Do we trust that? Do I trust that today? If you're not a Christian today, what God calls on you and really what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, it means, it means trust. That's what it is. It's, it's God, God's asking you, God's asking you to say, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have all the answers. God's asking you to say this to him. Lord, I, I can't fix all this stuff. I've made a mess of things. I have, um, I've, I've rebelled. I've done what even Adam did. I've done what Abram and Sarah did. I've become my own God. I've tried to be autonomous. I've, you know, I've tried to make my own right and my own wrong, and it hasn't worked out too, too well for me, Lord. What God is asking you to do today is to trust him, to turn your heart and life over to him and say, Lord, uh, please just you take over and be God. Be my God. Be my Lord. Take over. Trust in him with all of your heart. You demonstrate that publicly in baptism because what you're saying, you're submitting to him and you're being immersed in water, coming up out of the water with a new life, having been forgiven of all of your sins by the grace of Jesus Christ. You've, that's an act of submission, baptism is. It's saying to him, Lord, I am going to submit my whole life to you. Take it and do with it what you will. If you're ready to become a Christian, we invite you to do that today. Maybe as a child of God, your life has been characterized by what all of us at times have certainly done, and that is we've tried to manipulate and chart our own courses apart from the will of God. Why don't you come back to him today? Come back to him today. If we can help you, we will, however we can spiritually. Let's stand and sing this song.